Well, thank you for coming out tonight again. We are studying the book of Philippians in this class, so turn to Philippians chapter 1. So Eric gives out the assignments for all the passages, and he gave me four verses. So I, Glenn, well, you had like 15, 25 verses. I mean, that, the whole meat of the chapter, and I get four verses. But there are four good verses. <laughs> Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night. We thank you for each course, for each person attending. We thank you for the teens that are here. We thank you for the kids. We ask that you would cause this to be a meaningful evening for every person, that you would speak to hearts, that you would make yourself known, that you would bring increased clarity of yourself, bring encouragement, bring correction, bring all that we need, that we might see you well, that we might follow you faithfully. I ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the previous verses uh, that Glenn covered so well last week, uh, Paul had declared that for him, verse 21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And then he went on to express that while God does give him life, that he was committed, verse 25, to their progress and joy in the faith. So Paul is expressing uh, the fullness of his commitment to the Lord, of his desire to see that take place in God's people. And so from the description he gives of how he values life, Paul now dives into calling them to also live in a manner worthy of the gospel. So beginning in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So what does it mean for us to live uh, based on what is worthy, live a, in a manner worthy? What is worthy to us? It's an important question. And there are a lot of things that we assign worth things to. There are a lot of aspects of our life that have value. Uh, what we need to be thinking of what are the overarching values, what is most valuable? What values dominate others? 
when values collide, which values always are those that push the others aside. We know Christ is part of the picture. Uh, we can struggle with how much so. Well, Paul's really letting us know by his own testimony that uh, Christ is not the biggest part. He's the whole of it. As Paul says in verse 21, to live is Christ. The, the value that is the whole of our life is the place of Christ. What does it mean to live for him? That is the value that is unaffected by any other value and the value then that shapes every other value. That we live for Christ is unchanged. Nothing affects that, while that value will shape everything else. Now, this doesn't mean that we disregard or minimize other responsibilities of life, because God has given us the entirety of life. It, God has not just given us components. All that exists comes from him. And the places that he's given us in life, our responsibilities are from him. So it's not a matter of, of picking and choosing things we regard or disregard. It's that we carry out all that we do in a way that always is exalting Christ. And that shapes the rest. The point is that every category and purpose of life is submitted to him and pointed toward him. That is a manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ. If Christ doesn't rule our behavior, then something less worthy is. Whatever else is affecting our behavior will always be less worthy. As we speak at times, uh, an idol of the heart. An idol of the heart doesn't have to be something that is bad. It's something valued improperly. So we can make our children idols. And our children, we're to love with our whole heart. We're to sacrifice. We're to commit to them. We have responsibilities for them. And yet even something as precious as loving our children, that can be an idol if how we go about our responsibilities for our children gets ahead of what our life is before Christ. If that gets reversed, where what we think is important for our children is the dominant priority, and then what is given to God kind of comes after that, uh, something that is wonderful from God, and this one of the highest of gifts becomes an idol in how we handle it. Whatever gets in the way of Christ ruling all and him being the value that shapes everything, that has become an idol for us. The, um, 
the Puritans had a focus, one of the disciplines they would include along with Bible reading and prayer, uh, involvement in the church was the idea of watchfulness. They considered that to be an important discipline. Watchfulness is simply that we are actively processing what's going on in our life. You know, what do we actually do? What time do we actually give? What do we think on? So we are examining our heart and life to see, are there ways that as I'm reading my Bible, if you do that each morning, uh, am I reading it? And are there things there that you're not even thinking about how you're applying? Or if you were to pause and spend much time, you'd see, yeah, I'm not really doing that. In our prayer life, is it all complaining? Is it all selfishness? Is there praise to God? Uh, our involvements, our attitudes, watchfulness really is an important discipline. It's, it's part of the practice of living out things that we say we believe and value. And uh, that's part of what Paul wants to get us to. Let your manner of life be worthy. How would we know if that's so? What do we base that upon? There has to be a certain amount of reflection. Otherwise, we can read this, we can hear it and think, well, I haven't robbed any banks this week. I haven't purposely hit anyone with my car in over a month. So we can hear a statement and think, I'm not living in grotesque sin. There's nothing that immediately grabs my heart that's evil in my life. And we can go on thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm living in a manner worthy. Uh, well, it involves more reflection than that. And so part of what Paul wants us to think about is what is worthy, and he tells us the gospel of Christ, the truths about Christ. And if we are to fulfill this, it will require reflection and examination. And, and how we examine that is using what the Word of God says. And as we're reading it consistently, thinking about and praying about how what I'm reading is being processed in life. Um, I... There have been a few. You know, notice how God will bring together a few different things in a close amount of time, like hitting the same, same theme. For me, that's been uh, a number of books I've read in the last two months. Uh, they keep bringing up this idea of the reflectiveness on Scripture, praying in Scripture as you're reading, really praying about what's there. And that keeps coming up over and over again. And so, um, and so I don't have to share the weight of having to work on that by myself. I'm bringing it up to you as well. We can share that concern together. But I think it is necessary if we're to fulfill what he says here. To live worthy of Christ, it, it does obviously involve moral behavior. 
And it will at times involve certain sacrifices, things that I want to do this, but I realize I shouldn't, I can't. It's, it's setting right priorities. So it, it's how we live morally and involves sacrifice, but it's, it's not about moralism. And it's not about asceticism. You know, moralism where we follow a lot of rules and it's a good list of rules and I'm not doing these things, so I'm fine. Or asceticism is I just live a narrow life and by what I don't participate in, you know, I'm showing that I'm a righteous person. And moral behavior is required and sacrifice is needed. Uh, but the focus here is, is not the code of do's and don'ts that kind of wherever we are in our Christian culture, that's what Christians do or don't do. It's about the condition of our heart, the motivations of our heart, what we are valuing, what is shaping our attitudes and our priorities. The phrase manner of life, which is so central to the passage in verse 27. Uh, the wording there uh, implies the idea of citizenship, which would have been recognized by the original readers. As Paul is saying, let your manner of life, it would see this, the idea of being a citizen of an entity. So here, a a citizen of the kingdom of God and of the church. So we belong to a kingdom. We belong to a person, the person of Christ, his kingdom. We, we live for him. We live for that kingdom. The expectations come not from Kind of, this is my life, and I've added some religious behavior and some practices to it, and there's involvement in the church. It is a much more revolutionary change that has taken place. We, which, reading the book of Ephesians, he makes these contrasts over and over again. We are just wholly plucked out of the old life, we're thrust into a new life. It is a new kingdom. It is a new king. It has entirely different motivations, entirely different goals. And so we are not just, you know, tweaking our life with Christianity. We have left the old life. We are Christians now in places and responsibilities where we already lived. But the dynamic of how I think about my life and what I value and what is a worthy way to live, it, it is revolutionary change. Because it doesn't matter how religious you were or how good you were, before you were in Christ, your motivations and your values were very different. So this kingdom we're part of, our responsibility to it, it it's something huge, 
of lasting importance, of the greatest importance. So Paul gives some direction on living in a worthy manner. And we see in his directions, there is a strong context of the community of the church. Verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that when I come I may see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. So this is, he's speaking collectively about the church. He goes on with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So what he has to say is not just to each individual one, it's, it's a collective statement about what he expects of us. It, it requires what he has to say taking place in the context of the whole. It is impossible to fulfill verse 27 outside of the church. Impossible. It cannot be done. You cannot be one with those that you're not involved with, where life is not connected to them. We emphasize biblical community a lot in our church because the Bible does. The New Testament is saturated with one another language and values. Uh, and often we, we simply don't notice it because we are so used to in our culture of thinking individualistically. So every statement we read, unless it's overtly communal, we just assume it, it's about me, God and me. And that level is always there. But the context, well, every letter was written to a church. Every letter in the New Testament was first heard by everyone. It wasn't, okay, everyone get your copy of the letter. There was the copy that was read to the church, and over time those were recopied and multiplied, but it was always heard together. And the implications, you're hearing these statements about how you should live with the other people hearing the same thing. So when Paul's talking about patience or he's talking about your slander or gossip, you're hearing that not in the privacy of your favorite reading share. You're hearing it with the person maybe you gossiped about, you know, down the other side. I would imagine there were some squirming during some of these letters because you're hearing how you should live knowing they're hearing it too. And oh yeah, I think I may have violated that right in their face last week. The nature of God is eternally communal. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. God has always, forever, been a communal person. And our forever will be communal. 
all believers with God forever. Community is at the heart of Christianity. It's the heart of God's character. God didn't start loving when he created us to love. God was always loving because God always existed in community. God was always communicative because God has always lived and existed in community. So the, we can hear it, yeah, that's somewhat important. It, it's not important, it's foundational. And every character attribute has a communal nature to it. You have to practice it in community. We can be a Christian without practicing community, but we can't fully act like one because so much of acting like a Christian is based on community. We belong to a kingdom we're part of and responsible to something huge and wonderful and lasting. And we're to see ourselves, our little life is part of this big collective entity, not only in this place, but in the world and in generations. That's really part of this weekend, the Legacy Weekend, from marriage to the grandparenting to the Sermon Sunday, the, the, this theme of legacy and what we're receiving and passing on and the connectiveness of it is, is a big part of why we're having it and what Larry will be bringing to us. So I hope you'll be part of it as much as you can. The church is our forever family. How could that be something secondary to us? Forever family. The people you're with forever. That's almost scary. <laughs> forever. What I mean, like, like always forever? Like those people, like I never get away from them? Like ever? It almost can be overwhelming, the, the thought of it. We've just never experienced it with perfect love. It's our destiny. And so the, what are now the biggest realities about us and the lasting realities about us cannot be detached from our forever family, our community, our church. And so we, we can't allow the idea of living worthily to be just in our Cells, just in our attitudes within ourselves. It has to be in, in the context of, of us all. It has to be seen that way, not just how we think we lived 
in what we did today. Especially for me when a lot of my days are, there's a chair, there's a standing desk with a computer, and I kind of go from one to the other, like lots of hours. Chair, computer, coffee machine. That's when I'm walking far. Go to the other room. A lot of, Debbie will say, doesn't it drive you just to be home, like alone by yourself all the time? It's wonderful. <laughs> but it can be easy when you have some measure of, of isolation, you're just thinking in terms of how you're acting. I'm acting by myself. I mean, it's kind of hard to do something real bad. It just, I'm always looking after myself, doing good. What does it mean in the whole? So the, the two practices he gives to the church, verse 27, we are to stand firm together and we are to strive side by side together. And in one sense, you could, they're certainly linked. There's an argument you could just make it one thing. Uh, but I think it's more helpful to, to see them separately, even though they, they are very much connected. But to talk about each one separately and see together it's one piece. We're to stand firm together. Uh, this first phrase is more of a kind of a, a defensive sense. We're, we're together standing firm against where striving side by side is more of going forward and together covering life. So as we stand firm, it's, uh, the, the gospel has made specific realities true for us. We are born again into a a new life, a new birth. We have been justified, cleansed of unrighteousness. We've been adopted into the family of God. We are together the, the temple of God with all of God's people. We are to be fruit-bearing people. These are all now our reality. What God has done about us. So this standing firm is connected to the gospel at the end of the sentence. We're standing firm in what is true of what Christ has done. These realities that are only true because of the gospel. Are we standing firm together in what is true? of what Christ has done, of what he has made true for us, of the reality that I now live in. I am part of the family of God, the people of God. Now, we all know those things are true. We, we hear about them. We, we speak of all of these things frequently. And yet we all struggle with them. Not, we're not struggling to believe, necessary to believe it's true or not. 
whether we're justified or whether we're adopted or whether we should bear fruit. We, we struggle with how well we understand each one and what does it always mean specifically in how I live. We, we struggle to appreciate the value of each one. I mean, that's a huge struggle for all of us. Are we valuing these realities and truths in their measure? And the answer is if we were, we would not be sinning or compromising in any way at any time. Do we focus on each one as we should? Are we faithful to each one as we should? See, there's a lot of struggle with these things we say, I believe, and yes, they're important. And even I want them to be important in my life, and we still struggle to appreciate, to value, to focus, to exercise. In addition to our struggle just to live all of it out, we are opposed. The world doesn't have a problem that there are people committed to their values or their religion. You can love God all you want in the privacy of your own home. But to bring that out into all of life, which is necessary to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, that means it's not just in the privacy of your home. It means everywhere you are, we are overtly Christ-focused, Christ-speaking, loving him, holding to those values, and that makes the world uncomfortable. It runs against what they want, and so we are pressed to, it's fine for you to believe those things, just don't be so zealous, especially in our view. Zealous in a way that I have to hear it or be affected by it. Or they want us to be more generic. I mean, who's going to argue against love? Oh, they want us to be loving. But, you know, in the generic way. Don't love so much that you're loving someone in a way that makes them uncomfortable with the way they don't. Or that you're loving God so much that you have to defend his honor and his name. And that, we're pressed not to lean in fully. Have you ever had anyone say when you speak of just a conviction of how you handle yourself and sometimes even a believer can say, well, you don't have to take it that far. How far does God want us to take anything? God want us, wants us to be a little bit zealous? Or God wants us to be zealous on odd number days? Or and so we need to be rooted together to help each other, as Paul says, stand firm. 
There's an illustration. I've heard it a few times. Perhaps you have. Perhaps one of the other pastors has mentioned it. Um, yeah, of redwood trees, these gigantic trees, the, the tallest trees in the world. Uh, redwood trees have no tap root, meaning that, that long, huge, major root that goes deep. So you'd think trees that are a couple hundred feet tall would have the deepest roots that exist, and they don't. Their roots are actually rather shallow, 10 to 13 feet, which for an enormous tree is nothing. Uh, How do they stand? Uh, It's an interlocking root system. The root system of redwood trees, it doesn't go deep. It goes out far and connects with the root system of all the other redwood trees. That's why they don't fall over. Because they are connected in their root system. That's what Paul is saying here. So how does that take place for you? How do you stand firm with everyone else? Are you known in your church? Do you know? You're not going to be known by every person, and you're not going to know every person, but there has to be people that you know and know you. Without that, none of this can happen. How do you stand firm with people and you don't really know them? And they don't know you. It, it, It can't happen in any meaningful way. So not only know, is your life open, like honesty, with confession, with weakness, with this is what's going on? Are we involved? What's going on in their lives? Are we a learner? Are we humble? All of that is part of standing firm together without those we can't stand firm together. We'll just be in agreement when everything kind of is agreeable to us. Like going to an Eagles game and every time there's a touchdown, everyone's standing firm together. Yay! We groan at the same time, yell at the same time. That's not standing firm together. Not in any biblical sense. So the fact, the singing together has value God-given, but it has to be more than we're just all happy at the same time. And the sermon's over and all we leave at the same time. (laughs) If you're not engaged with fellow members, how can you fulfill this command from God? The second part is striving side by side. As I said, more moving forward. How are we progressing going forward in maturity and with gospel mission? These things are to be done together, just as standing firm, kind of defending ourselves, holding the line that, that's done in community going forward is done in community. The word striving carries a sense of an athletic competition, that a team has a common goal. The team works together. You can be 
a, a fabulous athlete, but your team won't win if the whole team is not working together. The, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, the many are one. And he says, and so it is with Christ, with the church, the believers. Many members, one body. And then a few verses later, verse 21, and so the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Now, when we, you know, seem to be weaker, who is seeming things to be weaker? Most of us think we're the weak ones. We're not as important. He says, those that seem weaker are indispensable, needed. We best fulfill gospel mission when it happens together. It not only strengthens all our efforts, it magnifies them. We're strengthened by what we do together, and the world sees the, the witness is greater. They will know you are Christians by your love, how you interact. Now, I, I almost hate to bring this up because I don't want to discourage you. Christians will disagree at times. Sorry to tell you. Just sorry to break this news. Christians won't always agree. I've heard it said pastoral teams won't always agree. Imagine that. You may know one or two couples where they don't agree. This happens. It's hard to strive side by side if we're at war with each other. When, yeah, they're part of my church, but they're not part of my life. It's hard to be side by side and go forward if we arrive in time for it to start and leave before we have to engage. It's hard to go forward when there is no connection or when the connection is filled with the, the barriers and space of disagreement and not wanting to run into that person or engage with that person because they're difficult or how they treated me or all the reasons we have for not being warm and fuzzy toward another person. And, and some of our disagreement can be for good reason, because of behavior or because of belief, of conviction. But times of disagreement are when we truly display the strength of unity in Christ. It can be, there can be convictions. I'll pull out an easy one. 
So you have Presbyterians who would embrace infant baptism, and you have Baptists who would never do that, who would be believers' baptism, and both of them are using Bible verses, and both of them have heritage of church history, and both have these strong convictions, and both churches can be wonderful, godly, faithful churches worthy of attending. And so, if someone doesn't want to be in a church where they are baptizing infants, a Presbyterian church, then it's probably better off than just go to a Baptist church where you're not bothered by that every time you see it. See, th there can be a healthy separation. We realize there's some different convictions that are not outside of the Bible. We're not violating. Now, someone's wrong and someone's right, and we will all find out. But th there's room to disagree there. And so to have churches that are faithful, that have their focus. But how, how we do that, are we still unified with the recognizing there are some different convictions or when the millennium is and end time doctrines that, that we're not kind of picky at each other or, you know, how can they believe that? That's so dumb. How we disagree is a display of Christian unity, and that can be with doctrines where there's room for disagreement, uh, but then even more so when there's just the personal disagreement of attitude and how we're treated. And to be committed, I don't like that. I didn't appreciate that. I would prefer that that doesn't happen again. However, this is my forever family. How often are you annoyed at someone you grew up with? Beyond count. With your siblings, your parents, your kids. But for the most part, your family, and you're not thinking about it, it's the commitment goes beyond that. The church relationship's even greater. The commitment that that's uncomfortable for me, but we are committed forever by what Christ has done, by what is real in us. So how do we make this work? How do we exercise the qualities of godliness. Part of gospel maturity is learning how to disagree, how to respond to what we don't like. In Romans chapters 14 and 15, the apostle has been laying out at length and in depth the doctrines of the gospel. And then in chapter 12, he turns to some of the applications of that. And the longest section of application that Paul makes with this gospel and all I've dug into, all this being true about the gospel, this is how we should live. And the longest section is chapter 14 and the first half of chapter 15, which is about believers and disagreements. 
He spends a chapter and a half on that topic. And he, he's not correcting one side or the other, not overtly. It's how do you get along and stay in harmony with that disagreement, that different conviction. Disagreement without disharmony is his theme. And so in chapter 15 of Romans, verse 1, he says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And so he's been using that language all through this section. The weak and the strong. And basically, whatever position we're in, we think it's the strong one. And whatever position other people have, we think it's the weak one. So the strong and the weak. The strong is what we always think our side is. The weak is the other believer. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, to bear with the failings of those who have another position that I don't think is right, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scripture we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Now, kind of he's talking about how we should live as Christ did, and he gets back to being in harmony. In the middle of it, he almost seems like he leads the topic, but we see he doesn't through endurance and the encouragement of Scripture to practice unity with other believers involves something called endurance, or what he already said was bearing with. You don't have to bear with something unless they keep being weak, unless they keep bothering us. So we we have to endure through what we don't really like or their weaknesses that just continue on. We're called to endure. Notice he doesn't say, after you fix them. We'd love that. And after you fix them, endurance and encouragement. And then he says, and because God is the God of endurance and encouragement. Grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ that together with one voice you would glorify God. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. So being in one spirit, striving in one spirit, it means our unity isn't based upon the same political convictions. Christians may have different political convictions. They may push a lever in the voting booth that you don't push that you would never think of pushing. 
that you want to tape over while you're in there so no one can push it. And they go in and push that. Our unity is not based upon that or other social issues. Our unity is not based upon our preferences. Our unity is based upon one person. Christ and his gospel. So there are two directions living in a worthy manner. We stand firm together. We strive together. And, and those are rather broad statements. Paul knows he's being broad. I mean, strive together. Stand. I mean, what is involved in that? Quite a bit. Well, what exactly does it involve? Uh, you have to think about it. You have to examine yourself. You have to really see, does the way I live in my church, could you, with any honesty, include that under standing side by side, striving together? Could you use that with any honesty about our participation with the people of God? And that's part of the question for each of us. And it's going to look differently for different seasons and different people. But he then uh, adds then two distractions that can get in the way. And we'll go over these pretty quick. The two distractions are not to be frightened by the world. And, and this is more implied. He speaks of that you will endure suffering. So it's not to be discouraged by the suffering. So verse 28 and not be frightened in anything by your opponents. Uh, it was an expression that would be used of uh, a, a war horse startled in combat that is out of control and, and trying to flee. Do not be frightened by the world. Why does Paul say that to us? Because we face a frightening world. Because there are scary things. People can do scary things people's attitude toward us, what they believe in and what they chase after, what they want to see happen, uh, those can be frightening to us. And yet Paul says, do not be frightened by your opponents. Because Christ's victory is total, because Christ is not frightened and we're with him because we're part of his kingdom and it won't be overthrown. His victory is total, his rule is sovereign, and his blessings are immeasurable. Because all of that is true. The victory of Christ, the rule of Christ, the, the future, because all of that is true, we can be disturbed, we don't have to be frightened. When we're frightened, we can run, we can become angry in response. We can hold too firm to things that are more comfortable, that don't feel threatened. We can push too hard with people. I think how many times we can do that with our kids. We're frightened 
and we can try to over control because we're frightened of what could happen in ways that aren't always helpful. I mean, these are real things that we have to consider. We can lash out because of fear. But fear does not belong to those who are the beloved of God, for those held in his hand. Fear is for those without Christ. That's his point in verse 28. Don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that of God. You're, you're not frightened. Your peaceableness is a testimony of your rootedness belonging to God, your confidence there. It's a sign of what they don't have. And then the other distraction is of suffering. Verse 29, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that. I still have. To, suffering is granted, he says. It, it could also be translated graced. Suffering is graced to you because in every suffering which is given by the hand of God, under the sovereignty of God, for his people there's always grace there. Always grace. Grace for us in it to grow Grace to glorify him, grace to impact others. Grace is, is running through every form of suffering we have. And that's why we're not discouraged by it, though it's hard and wearisome, because we know God is doing something. And twice he says, and you're doing it for the sake of Christ, reminding us. It's connected to the personal work because remember, we are now a part of him, his kingdom. We're connected to him inseparably. So all that we're involved in, all that God grants to us is connected to Christ and his kingdom and our participation in it. So that you're sharing a suffering with Christ. He's part of it. It's part of what is being accomplished for him and by him. And that changes how we look at things. It never looks good when you're in the middle of surgery. You walk into a room where surgery is taking place, it doesn't look good. Anytime someone took a knife and opened up your body and they got their hand in there, there's nothing you can do to make that look good. That that goes against everything that we ever heard or thought or experienced about what is right with the world. And someone cutting us open and sticking their hand in has nothing to do with things are right with the world. However, successful surgery is something of great value. And so we go through with things that aren't going to look good in the middle. That's why they put us asleep. Even if we couldn't feel it, we would still want to be asleep. Any procedure. Do you want to be put to sleep? Of course I do. 
It's just a shot. I don't care. Put me to sleep. I don't want to know any of it happened. I want to be asleep when I get on the scale. That's the, <laughs> the hardest thing of the whole endeavor. And now it's like a cargo scale. It's this huge thing. Get up on that. I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear what it is. I don't want to know what it is. And I don't want to comment it on later on. Paul lets us know we're engaged in the same conflict he was. Engaged in the same conflict you saw that I had. So whatever is suffering for you, it's because all suffering is because of sin, because of Satan, because of evil in the world against the things of God. We have the same suffering as all other believers through time and other places. We're sharing this together, which is part of why we have to be connected with this together. And so it helps that we see suffering is always a God issue, a heart issue, a worthiness of Christ issue. And Paul tells us, only live worthy of the gospel of Christ because of Christ we can. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would affirm to your people what they need affirming, that you would bring clarity to us, prod us about where something from this passage we, we need to work on. Help us to see it, to, to see it not with discouragement, but with the joy of progressing in a way that pleases and honors you. Help us in Jesus' name, amen.